We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast. Find yourself in this space every week, a place where American values are cherished and treasured, a place where we celebrate each other, a place you belong. It's nice to be in the company of like-minded individuals and uh, it's honored to be a part of all this. Like you say, this is the greatest country in the world and it's far too often that we don't realize that, but it's how blessed are we to be part of all of this. So grateful to be around like-minded people. Operation Enduring Warriors mission is to honor, empower, and motivate our nation's wounded military and law enforcement veterans through programs ranging from skydiving, public speaking, archery, endurance races, and much more. Honorees overcome adversity and hardship through innovation, teamwork, and perseverance. Together, our team, honorees, and supporters make up our OEW family. Operation Enduring Warrior, honoring their sacrifice. For more information, visit EnduringWarrior.org. Frank Fields is an Army vet who served in Iraq and Germany with the famed Big Red One. Frank lost both of his legs from an IED explosion while serving his country. Frank has such a flair for sharing his story, he could not be contained to one episode. This is Frank's American Story, Part 1. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Frank Fields. Frank, welcome. Thanks for having me. I was talking to Frank before we started recording, and I told him that he has been all over Operation Enduring Warrior social media. So you need to check out OEW because Frank is a beast. He just completed a Spartan race and we'll touch on that. But before we do that, let's start at the beginning of your story, Frank. Can you share with us a little bit about growing up and what led you to join the military? Just a a quick bio on just kind of my childhood. I was actually born in Germany and in the capital of Germany, which is actually called Frankfurt. Of course, my mom is German, who still lives there, and my sister lives there, and my dad, being American, they got divorced when I was a kid, so, uh, you know, and they were great co-parents in that regard, but that's how I came to be uh, an American. I mean, I was already had the citizenship because of my father, but that's how I started out that journey over here at five years old, learning English and getting adapted into the school system and being the weird foreign kid for a couple of years. I, I mean, me, I'm, I'm biracial, I'm German, I'm black. And so it became like a cool thing throughout high school. Like, you know, he's got this cool background. And so I, I started fitting in and blending in quite well and just loved America in that sense. And so if we kind of go fast forward to 
say 2005 or 2004, I had just graduated high school in 2003. And even though my father spent 27 years in the military, I had no ambition of joining the military. And I think that's important to the story because I think often I get a lot of people that if they didn't join the military or they didn't go fight, they almost feel the need to explain that to me. And, and it's like this back and forth thing that I get all the time. And I just always want people to know, like, I didn't have a huge career. You know, I wasn't some high ranking guy. I was just a kid that joined and, and got hurt. But going back to that, so 2004, uh, a recruiter shows up at my door and it was to my surprise. At this time in my life, I had lost my father when I was 12 years old. So at this point in my life, even though I had a good man raising me, it's tough when you don't have that father example. And so I was kind of bouncing around and I was kind of lost in life. I, I didn't really have this great ambition. I probably at that point, I thought to myself, well, I'm not even on that level that I could be some soldier because that's too prestigious. And then I could never live up to the footsteps that had been laid before me by my father. And so being kind of lost, it, I guess it's like they say that everything happens when it's supposed to. And that recruiter, he had to really sell me. So he earned his paycheck, but he got me down to the uh, center. Uh, of course, I took the test. And once we got through that, he laid out some options. I can admit uh, I didn't have some huge score on the ASVAB that would have landed me, you know, in some uh, plush uh, million dollar job, as we call it in the military. More power to people who achieve those types of things, definitely. However, that was not my forte. And so I had either, hey, go be an infantry guy or go drive trucks or go do just regular jobs, which all jobs are important, so I'm not trying to downplay anything, but I chose to be a truck driver. And they told me that, you know, that's like the, one of the most dangerous jobs you could do right now. The war had already kicked off. And I'm not saying this because I was brave. That's the way I am in life. If I'm messing up, I'm messing up 100%. But if I'm succeeding, I'm succeeding 100%. And I thought, well, I can really do something. I can really be a part of this thing and be somebody. And don't really know why I had that inkling at that point, but it just happened that way. And so I chose that job, 2005. And this is a crazy part of the story. Being born in Germany, I saw my mom back and forth here and there a few summers at a time. However, it's like I always wish secretly to be back in Germany somehow. And wouldn't you know it, when they called out the orders the first day for Germany, I wasn't called. It was crazy, but the next day we were having a formation before lunch and they came back and they said, hey, we got a couple of more orders for Germany. And this was already just so out of the ordinary already. It's like a movie. Of course, I was one of the people to go. I got stationed in Germany two hours away from my mom. My time leading up to Iraq was short, lived with mom and sis, but I am so grateful that I got to do that because more so, I think, for my mom. I think it gave her some closure, even though she was 
worried. She did not like me going in the military. She's a smart lady. She knows what the war is all about. She follows our politics. So she didn't like that, but being the great mom she is, she supported me. I spent about less than a year over there. I mean, it felt like two years or three years, but by 06, by the beginning of 06, I was shipping out to go to Iraq, to Baghdad. And it was game time. Honestly, as a soldier, I don't know if other people have, have said this kind of stuff, but now looking back as a 37 year old man, I put on a great poker face, but it was terrifying to think that here I was just this funny, goofy kid a year removed from my kind of lazy lifestyle. <laughs> and now I was going to do this. On top of that, I had done well in the army. I excelled. I, I became my boss's driver. And so things were going really well, but still it was just always this pressure and this doubt. And so when it was time to go to war, it was kind of like, I think a lot of people felt this way. It was terrifying to think about what could happen. We ship out. I mean, we get to Iraq and immediately it is on the helicopter ride in, we're getting shot at. That kind of stuff. And that's the experience for a lot of soldiers. I'm no special ranking. I'm no ranger. I'm no special guy. At this time, I'm just an E3. I'm just a, a private three or PFC as we call it. I can't really process all of it because you don't have time. And so from the first minute, it's just chaos. And then I always tell people there are times in war where it becomes so normal that you've been there, you become desensitized because you have to. I believe the subconscious mind does something to help you or our bodies do something. So they take you like almost having an out of body experience in your body. Can I take you back a little bit? Please. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So number one, is that normal for them to go door to door recruiting? <laughs> I've never well, heard of that. Well, I lived in the country. I lived okay. in a place called Tyler, Texas, East Texas. And yes, it is uh, in that place for sure. It is one of those. There's some people that we live out in the country and they might never really get to the city or be in the city that much. And people have kids, obviously. That's the, why the recruiters usually get paid the big bucks because they spend a lot of their non-clock time sometimes doing things or extending the so-called uh, army branch. I just thought they went to the school, so I did not know that was a thing. Yeah, that's one way they do it. Number two then, do you speak German? Do you still speak it? I do. Do you consider yourself fluent? I don't consider myself fluent respectfully because when I'm speaking with my mom or my sister, they know English. It's not like I'm ever really speaking German fluently to another German. It's always kind of broken. And this next one, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. I'm curious, you're here in America, your dad dies. Why did you not go back to Germany to be with your mom? This is uh, one of those million dollar questions too. I can already see it from my book one day. This is going to be like that turning point. When my father passed away, one thing you have to understand, I have to give the little backstory on him. My father was born in 1926. What? Yeah. And yeah, believe it. And so my dad was 59 years old when he had me. How much older was he than your mom then? 
15, 20 years. My grandparents were actually 25 years apart. Wow, that's amazing. And my father passed away from colon cancer. And my dad, as he said on his deathbed, some of his last words, he was in the hospice and the doctor came in and said, uh, Mr. Fields, I'm sorry, it's not much more we can do. And my dad grabbed the doctor's arm and he said, Doc, don't apologize to me. I've been around the world twice. You don't owe me nothing. Oh. I always took that with me because I always felt like that was braver than I could ever hope to be. If I could be halfway that brave in anything that I do, then I'll be a superstar. But you were only 12 years old. Yeah, 12 years old. How do you handle that then when your mom's in Germany? My mom and sister fly over here to, uh, of course, console me and spend the time with me so we can mourn. But at 12 years old, my dad taught me so much stuff that got me ready for life because he knew in the back of his mind, I think in, in the last few years, it helped me, I think, be a little more mentally tough when I needed to be. But you don't know that as a kid, you don't have the tools to converse with people and say, okay, well, this is how I feel about this. And this hurts me. And I was 20 something years old when I finally fully cried and broke down and let things out. And it was kind of on the cusp of this, that'll come in the story. Yeah, I didn't have the tools. I didn't know how to do it. All I knew was how to be tough for my mom and my sister. And they didn't want that, but that's all I knew because I was raised by my father. Being a World War II veteran himself and Vietnam veteran, by the way, my dad, to raise me in his 60s, to have those moments of softness, I cherish that in him because I know he was one-sided coming from that era and you either got things done, you didn't make excuses, when it was time to work, you worked, but there was always value in the experience of things. We've kind of lost these days because things are so instant. We'd rather take a photo of the moment than actually look at the moment and see it and live it. He was a little rigid, but it got me ready, I think, for that moment. I'm just and, surprised you know, your mom did not drag your butt on the plane and take you to Germany. This is also now what I say in hindsight is why I respect my mom. You have to think, and you being a mother, when you just take a kid out of school in the same country, it can have traumatic effects at certain ages. Okay, so I already got taken out of my country. I think my mom, she really wanted to know what I wanted. She said, listen, come on back with us. And they pushed that on me as a kid and really wanted me to come back. Everything would have been fine because there's another caveat I'll get into in a second. But I told my mom, everything I know is in America. All my friends, I've learned English now. It would have made me sad as a kid to leave and leave all this behind. I had family around me. My aunt and uncle took me in. So I had options. I don't put that on my mom because I had the choice to go back. And I didn't want to go back. And it broke her heart. But ultimately, I respect my mother so much because... She must have had some hindsight saying, well, this really could affect him or this is his choice. How many times do you really trust a kid at 12 years old? I've always been that way. I've always been kind of the kid that was a little more deeper, a little more artsy, a little more conscious. It was my choice. And I'm glad that they let me make that choice because you see how everything worked out after that. I still got stationed over there and they say life is by design. You can try to go left, you can try to go right, but ultimately you, you wind up where you're supposed to be.
I cannot believe that as a 12 year old child that you were mature enough to make that decision though. That is amazing. That's amazing. I credit my father. I mean, he gave me a backbone, I think at an early age and just kind of didn't really allow me to have excuses. And as a kid, that's frustrating because sometimes you got to let your kids say, okay, well, you messed up, but that's how I learned. And I think it hardened my mind a lot. I'm tough on one end, but I'm not really filtering out all those feelings and emotions like I know how to do now. Did Um, you feel like you had to be tough then as a teenager? Like, I need to show everybody that I can handle this. I need to show that my dad made me strong. And so I'm not going to show those feelings. I'm going to keep them on side because they need to see that I'm as tough as he is and that I can handle this. And that way my mom won't worry and everything will be okay. I believe a lot of kids do that, right? That's our perception when we're that small is that take, for example, if we see mom and dad fight. We think maybe that's because of us as a kid. So we try to do things, try to do better in school. You've heard cases where people even grow up and become worldwide famous and great at sports. And it's just all because they were trying to impress a parent. You know, my parents never made me feel like I needed to impress anybody. The hierarchy of my family was we are mentally tough people. Germans are pretty resilient. So I feel like, you know, your foundations mold you and it just made me. Not necessarily better. Uh, It just made me that way. So when that recruiter comes to your door, what was it then? You said you had never really seriously even considered it. What was it that, okay, is it because I don't know what else I'm going to do? What was it that made you say, okay, I'll join? So a reoccurring theme in my life is when big choices kind of face me, I kind of just make them. I don't really sit back and analyze them too much because if I do, a person like me will find something. And most people, our ego will find something to pick apart so we won't do it. And I don't know, I'm just not wired that way, I think. Yeah, like I said, he had to sell me on it. I made him work for it. I don't remember the magic words of what he said. I just remember the feeling. I remember in an instant because You have to understand, I was getting in trouble. I didn't go to college right away. All the things that my dad would have whooped my butt, and it's not putting it on the people who raised me because it's not their fault. They were great. It's just they were raising a bunch of other kids, and I'm not the only one they took in, you know, so, and other kids went to college. I have no excuse. Uh, And I'm getting into trouble, and I'm hanging with totally the wrong people. And, and I'm trying to be one of the cool people, like at the age of 18 and all that. So what happens? I get in trouble a couple of times. I get locked up in county for like two or three months. And I want people to understand that about me because it's not the way you start. But I got in trouble. I got on probation for a misdemeanor. That I won't publicly disclose. Well, were you doing those things because... You weren't really the leader. You just wanted to be a part of a group and you just went along. At that age, I didn't know how to deal with my emotions that I had all the the little traumas I went through. And I think, you know, that thing in life, life isn't fair, but when it happens to you unfairly, it can cut you down. I think I just didn't have the tool set to deal with that stuff. So of course I need to be a cliche badass, or I don't know if I can say that, sorry, but- Yes, you can, don't worry. 
I need to be this tough guy, uh, especially because my mom and my sister formed in me early on. I'm trying to, I think now when I look back at the young me and I analyze myself as a life coach now, it's like, I was screaming for help. That was my perception of trying to do something and get noticed. I didn't feel like I was that special anymore. I graduated high school. I, here I was going in and out. I went from being a basketball player, being somebody who didn't hang around people who even smoke cigarettes. I don't judge people who smoke cigarettes, but here I was smoking them. It was just unbecoming of me, but I didn't know that. I, didn't, I hadn't built this guy that I am today yet. You were lost. I was so lost. And was the army maybe then a way to get out of that? Well, when I got there, I can tell you it was a family for a person who, when they say it takes the village to raise a baby, and I always jokingly say, well, I'm that baby. And so the army just, it massaged all the things that were uncomfortable. And I'm not downing the army. What I mean is looking at it, I didn't have to go to college. Well, I can go in the army and my room and bed is paid for. Like most kids that are getting out of school or in school, they're thinking about paying bills, starting mortgages, doing these kinds of things. It's not even on my radar. And so, yes, playing that part, I think it kind of, it sang to me because it was easier. And I felt like I could do it because of all the things I had traversed and that this would be easy. I had a guest, his name is Carmelo Rodriguez. And he said he joined the military because he had a really rough upbringing, really rough, where there were times that he didn't know where his family was going to get the next meal. And he said where a lot of people, basic training was hard. He loved it because he said, I knew every day that I was going to have food. I knew every night that I was going to have a bed and a roof over my head. And it was the first time that he had felt secure. I agree. I, I totally agree when you put it that way, because not only that, I was now impressing my uncle and my aunt and they are coming to my graduation and they're driving all the way across state. And it's like, they would never really drive that far because they're in their sixties at this point. And so, I, I mean, like I said, it massaged all the uncomfortable things about my, I guess my inner self. Well, you're flying into Iraq, and what are the nerves like? As a life coach, I talk to a lot of people, they, and, they, and I see this face, this poker face we all put on, uh, and we have to, because that's what you signed up for. Inside, it's terrifying. You're in a Chinook helicopter, which is not like uh, the president's helicopter or, you know. <laughs> You're not flying on a luxury jetliner. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not Tony Stark in that thing. You know? <laughs> and that's what we could have used as Iron Man. But we are the Iron Man in this scenario. I and love that. I've never heard that. I love that. You are the Iron Man. I love that. We are, you know, uh, one of my favorite character besides He-Man growing up anyways, but that's, that's another podcast. <laughs> hey, I am all about the Marvel universe. I'm a complete nerd and I love the Avengers. So we're okay there. Nice. nice. <laughs> Dark when we're flying in. And just to explain the process, it's like you go to airport in Germany, of course, military base, either Ramstein or another one. We went to a little more low key, I think. I don't remember which one, but you get on a, a commercial flight, but the whole flight is just for us. And then, of course, the flight goes 
to what they call a safe zone in the Middle East. We get off the flight. I remember getting off and, you know, we got a hundred pounds of gear on all this stuff. I'm telling my buddy, because as soon as you get out, it's just this hotness. It takes just all the oxygen. Like I imagine this is what Mars is like in some respects. I thought you were going to say hell. (laughs) That's a given. If people ever get upset with me and tell me to go there, I said, "Ah, I got the (laughs) teacher. I've already been there. And I made it back. We're getting off the plane and and I go, are they going to turn the jets off on the airliner? One of my squad leaders, he goes, there's no jets on. I'm not even being facetious. I really thought the jet was just hitting me. Next, we have to like foot march for... It was like two, two hours or something like this. Oh, miserable. (laughs) And then we get to a gym. We're sitting in these old basketball, like it was the the oldest high school gym you could ever think of. It predated Saved by the Bell. (laughs) We get in there and I'm not kidding. There's this Sergeant Major. He's all decked out and I'm very intimidated because I'm low ranking soldier and this guy must be a real Real badass. This guy looks like what movie scripts try to write in characters for. He has one eye missing and he has a scar on his eye. I'm not wishing scars on anybody, but I will say from personal experience, scars do add 10 points of coolness. So he had the cool factor. It was all business right away. He did not sugarcoat something for us and welcome us. Hey, what's going on, guys? No, it was, hey, look, A, B, C, this is what's going to happen. It's an, an unbelievable amount of words through a garden hose that type of deal because you're just brand new and i'm there with guys thankfully that have been to war two and three times one of which was an important player later here in the story once i get to the explosion his name is wesley skillen he is a medic for the big red one he is one of my best friends we file out to get on the chinook the way to get on this, because it has these afterburners, you have to do what's called the duck walk. And you kind of have to duck and keep your head down because the jets will burn you because of the heat. And that's why I had asked that about the commercial airliner. So we get on and you're piled in this school bus helicopter, pretty much, in which is sh- way shorter. It's got two blades on top, the mash helicopter, if you ever remember. We're flying and we have one guy on the bird and he has a 50 cal hanging out of the bird. Like in the movies, one of those rotating 50 cals and it's attached to the actual plane or the Chinook. And he's just going to lay down cover fire in case we get shot at or somebody tries to blow us down with RPG or something like that. And that, I think, is when it got real for me. That's terrifying. it, It was. It was because I just thought... You can't see anything. I got one guy without night vision. Maybe had night vision. Probably had night vision. My memory's hazy. He's got a 50 cal smoking a cigarette, John Wayne in it. And I'm like, this guy must be the best shot in the whole unit. I don't know. But I don't even know how to get this job. That's how I knew I was at this point. Um, I'm just terrified that an RPG is coming. Um, And so you see, you hear, king, king, like bullets. You see tracers from bullets. By the grace of God and the universe, we made it. Uh, We landed. And then it was another like two hours of marching and walking. This is like 40 guys. And we're all in one line. 
spread out. And we finally get to our, our fob and it's called Rustamaya, very small fob. We get there and it's like two in the morning. Oh, you must've been absolutely exhausted. Exhausted, hungry, scared. <laughs> yeah. I keep reiterating that I'm human and I do get afraid. Everybody gets afraid because that's your body letting you know to stay aware. I think it's very, very normal. We get there and there's like, because what we take over has been like bombed. It's a base, but it's just a place that we took over and we made it a base. So people have been there, of course, for months or years, but we have this building and the building has one long hallway in it. It's got two rooms on each side in the hallway that's made for about two to three people. And these aren't rooms. These are just gutted out spaces. And then if you go, we had a breezeway in the middle. And if you go, we have another part of the building there. It was like uh, bunk beds and all that, but we had to build all that stuff back. So the first few nights we were just sleeping, me and my gunner, Jose Lopez, we were the platoon sergeant's driver and gunner. So all the drivers and gunners for all the sergeants, we stayed in the rooms with the hallway, which some people hated on, uh, on us for it because it was like, oh, you're getting special treatment. I'm like, no, I have to work twice as hard as you. But it's like me and Lopez, so tired. We just set up a cot and we didn't even take our vests off because if you keep the vest on, uh, you just unbutton it so you get some air, but the back is, you got the plate in it. So if you have a buddy, you can sit against the plates and it's like you can lean. And so we sat on that cot out in the middle of the breezeway and we fell asleep right there back to back. And that was my first night in Iraq until about 4 a.m. when my platoon sergeant came outside and he said, Lopez Fields, get in here. He had one of the rooms back there and we kind of slept for a couple more hours on cots back there because those came to be our rooms anyways. When I woke up, I went and there was this huge water line. Everybody's getting water, kind of getting topped off. We were just getting all settled in. We didn't have missions to run yet or anything. One of my squad leaders, who's not my, my boss, but just, he's a squad leader. Because yeah, we had two squad leaders apiece for every squad. And he's complaining. He's like complaining at me because he, he's talking to all the guys, oh, well, Fields and, and Lopez think they're special. In no way, shape, or form <laughs> am I ever saying that a younger soldier should be disrespectful to an NCO, even if the NCO is being disrespectful. So in this part of the story, I was wrong, but I want to tell it because this tells, I think, when I look back at it, how much I was feeling inside and it was under the poker face. Um, and that's the only way I could deal with it is to lash out at him, to take my scared energy and kind of man up, so to speak, on it. And so I got right in his face and I was ready to go country boy on him. <laughs> country boy. <laughs> A couple of guys separated us, took us in the back. They made us like, oh, do this whole thing, apologize to us and all this. And uh, because they had been to war a couple of times, people understood the frustrations and uh, it was a misunderstanding. And, and then we got along pretty much after that day. 
But that was my first day in Iraq. And I don't remember much after until we started kind of running a lot of missions. Did you only have the one deployment then? Yes. Well, can you lead us up to the day of the event? Maybe tell us what you are responsible for and then what happened that day, how long you were into your deployment. And I'm curious too, if you'd had any close calls before. Great question. So the fatal day was November the 22nd. And this day I'll never forget. I had been there for about eight and a half months. How long was your deployment? My appointment was a year. It was supposed supposed to be be a year. You were like three quarters of the way there. And here is a crazy thing about this story. In the beginning, I had the chance to go on leave because you get a two-week leave from Iraq where you go home to your family, and rightfully so, I think. And I had that chance. I didn't want anybody else to take my job while I was gone. Starting off, I wanted to set the tone. I gave my spot to someone, a younger guy, so he could go on leave. And the only way I was able to do that was because I was, uh, respectfully, I was cool with my boss. And I just, like I did a lot of things, I just begged him for things. <laughs> but I, I also could do that because I did a great job usually. So I wasn't a guy that got yelled at or anything like that usually. So what are you doing? You're driving trucks, right? Right. I had been there for about eight and a half months and I'm driving a Humvee every day. And we mostly go out at night or at least after sunset. And over there, you have to drive 25 miles an hour. It's like our code. And Humvees don't go that fast anyways. You're not going to, you know, get the speed of a Tesla in that thing. It doesn't go from like zero to 60 in 2.5 or something like that. Maybe in the future. <laughs> um, every time I got in that thing, I was, I was fearing getting blown up because you ask about the close calls. The one that I truly remember is, and this was less than a month before it happened to me, because I had gotten comfortable being there. I had gotten comfortable with mortars shooting around us or or certain things happening, and we just hit the ground and find safety or, or did what we have to do or pull security. I got so comfortable with that. You have to let it go to your ego. You, you cannot be a nice guy when you're, when you're doing, I mean, I'm gonna say it, you're doing bad things. A lot of good men do, do bad things in the cover of night so people can live easy. So it had been like eight, eight, eight and a half months and then I'm, I'm going out one mission and it was a mission to drop off medical supplies. And over the radio while we're headed there, we hear that uh, a Humvee and another unit, well, our unit, but another uh, company got hit. And so when we got there to the little spot where we're dropping off everything, they had the Humvee there because the, the guys were okay. Nobody got hurt, some scratches and, and a scare, but it's sensational in a way because the ID, IED hit in the front of the Humvee and it just hit in the perfect spot to take out the engine block. So imagine a Humvee with a just giant crater and melted wheels in the front. And those guys were okay. And that scared the crap out of me. I was so glad they were okay. But inside I was like, I gotta get right back in this truck. I don't wanna say this because 
Like I, I only say it for myself. I feel like maybe some things you can attract in a way because you have this energy and it's almost like you ever notice like you take two marbles put them on the ground and eventually they'll just roll towards each other that type of stuff i feel like that almost happened because from that point on when i woke up and there were so many other dangers it's like you know i was fixated on this one thing but it, it were all these other things around me too how could you not though that's such a scary thing and for something that you do every day and i'm wondering too frank did you ever see anything that was really i mean you don't have to really go into detail that just really disturbed you you know because i've talked to some other people and like the first time like you see a dead body i mean because most of us aren't going to do that and what that was like for you I'll just keep it PG for the cast. Okay, I'll, I like one of my first memorials because every time a soldier died in our unit, we went to a memorial. I mean, we had 10, 15 memorials while I was there, easy. That I can remember. I, I hate to say it that way. It's no disrespect to the fallen, but I, I would have to go into my records and look at, look at obituaries. But one of the first KIAs was uh, Staff Sergeant McKinney. They were in a Humvee. And a grenade had gotten thrown in the Humvee. There was enough time for Sergeant McKinney to jump on top of the grenade. And tell the rest of the guys to get the hell out of there. I don't know what the conversation was. And I'm going to get to this part of the story, too. You might have to remind me when we get there. But this came 362. That's why I say life is by design almost. But the other guys got out. One of which, the guy in the back seat, his name was Ian Newland. <gasps> oh my, hey, you know, he was on my podcast, Ross McGinnis. Yeah, he was in Charlie Company and I was in headquarters. He did the Ultra when I did the Spartan. Yes, I, I love Ian. He's a great guy. And he was, a, he was there a lot longer in Germany and everything. When that happened, he was in the back seat. And getting to talk to him, after the Spartan and see where we are and we're alive. And, and, and I mean, it's just, uh, it, yeah, I'm not going to get emotional about it, but it's definitely, if you sat and, and pondered it long enough, you're like, wow, you know, you're so grateful that you don't even think about yourself being alive still, but they think about you that way and you think of them that way. And you have this bond for life now. And we can always keep uh, Staff Sergeant McKinney's spirit alive. Uh, yeah, and that, and that happened. And that, is one of many things that I, I can kind of go into detail about because like you say, if most people can't fathom it, I'm not going to give them the shock factor because it's going to only add to their anxieties. You know, they, they're already worried about us. You guys are already so worried about us all the time. And it's like, I think the, those, the details of those stories usually go with, with the brothers and sisters when we have our powwows. Just seeing stuff like that all the time like I say, it desensitizes you. Um, and this is the main reason why I get it, why people come back over here and they freak out on the guy in the drive-thru because he's not moving fast enough, even though that guy's doing a great job. Sorry to all <laughs> restaurant workers. Fast food workers, you have a hard job. <laughs> and anybody who has had to put up with PTSD-ridden veterans, apologize ahead of time. I get it. In the military, you don't have time to cry about it. And if somebody whines about it, well, I'll just take your rank or I'll take some money out of your pocket and 
we'll see how you get you know, how much happier you are tomorrow. You know? That's the thing is they condition you guys to the point that you physically know what to do and you don't have time for the mental stuff. You just push it aside and then it comes up later and haunts you. But at that point, you don't have the time. You just, you've been trained, you know what to do and you focus on the physical part. Take us to that day, what is happening? This day is, once again, it's part of the movie because, and that's what I call my life, it's kind of a movie. I think everybody has a movie. It's just whether you're willing to show it to other people or not. And, it, and everybody has stars in their movie. Uh, some people just don't understand that they're the star. I don't but, know, my movie might be a little boring. <laughs> and that's okay because somebody that's 10 times as boring will come along and be like, hey, you got a pretty good life. You said, I'm just an average mom. And I said, there's nothing average about being a mom. So, oh, thank you. So that day, uh, it's about 1030 at night. It was November the 22nd and Notice the numerology here, and not that I'm a, a believer in numerology, I just use the term. It was four days after my 22nd birthday. So November 18th is my birthday, and I had just turned 22 uh, on a mission. We were in the middle of a mission, and it was kind of cool because Sergeant Major was in, in one of the trucks back there, like our our unit Sergeant Major. And... Uh, and he comes over the radio and uh, he's just like, we're ready to get details, maybe some orders. And uh, he says, oh, I just want to everybody uh, give a big shout out to uh, Private Frank Fields, 22nd birthday. And and I'm like, Sergeant Major's doing this. You know, I was like, that's cool. You know what I mean? So uh, I got I got some love that day and, and it was a great mission. And we went home and then the next mission was that mission on the 22nd. And. So we're, we're going out. I remember praying before the mission because we always prayed before we went out, uh, our little group. And it was about maybe 10 to 15, a couple more, give or take in the formation. So it was all trucks. I was in Humvee. We always kept our medic, which was my friend, Wesley Skillen in the back, just in case this kind of stuff happened. And so, doubling back a little bit back to him how he got to be because he wasn't part of our company because he was a medic but when i got there i begged sergeant nagel hey look can we talk about maybe getting because his nickname was skills because he's got the skills to pay the bills he's been to war a few times and, and he was a big guy i i went to the boss and i said can we get skilling out to ride with us on missions uh because i think internally I was uh, a bit afraid uh, and I want and to have my friend there that I had been in garrison with. I think that definitely instilled a lot of confidence in me because he ran a hundred and something missions with us, you know, and uh, he didn't have to do that. He had like one boss to answer to. And he always tells the story. He's like, I remember when you came to my room and he's like, ah, Frank, I wanted to smack you. And I said, you want to hit me? Because you knew I couldn't say no. Going back now to the night, we're out, we had been out for about 45 minutes probably. We're on a route, on a, on a road called Route Brewers because they all had baseball names. Uh, it had been at this time the most hit route in Iraq. And I had went up and down this route over a hundred times already. Cause I counted, I, I had my little etching on my bunk bed 
and and I counted every time I successfully made it back. That was like my thank you. We are driving along, and all I can describe it as to give a visual is just imagine you're you're sitting in your car, and in an instant, like the way a TV turns on, fire is just in your face. It's all around you. That's from the initial blast. Our Humvees had C4 in the doors, so it would counter the blast and blow it back out. And then we have a, a ton of protective gear on, which I'm, I'm glad I wore because there was always this piece called the lizard tongue and I hate it. Everybody hates it because of the way it literally hangs down like a little kilt. It worked and I'm glad it worked. So uh, shout out to the guy who invented the lizard tongue. I, uh, I'm gonna donate to that guy's charity one day. <laughs> so it's fire all around you. Once the fire dies down, my initial thing is, of course, I'm in shock because we just got hit. And now here is the moment we've been training for all the time. This is a real deal, even though we, we already been in the real deal, but this is, this is vital. My initial thought was, I look over, my gunner is gone. My platoon sergeant is hopping out of the vehicle. So I take the door and it's not opening. I start nudging it. It sounds a lot cooler than it looks because it wasn't cool. The door just falls off in one piece, off the hinges, just. So my initial thought is, well, I got to get out. I got to pull security. I got to check for wounded. I got to find my gunner. And when I went to get out, I'm not realizing that my legs are mangled at this point. That's amazing. Because you're adrenaline and never look down. I always said, if I got hit, I'm never going to look down. So when I went to go get out the door, I just naturally fell onto the ground. I couldn't see how my legs were. This big plate in your vest. And when you're laying, you can't see over it. Uh, and you're like a ninja turtle. You got the shell in the back and the front, you know? And so I'm laying there and I start feeling a little bit of pain. My platoon sergeant, Sergeant Nagel, my boss, he has gotten out of the, what we call the TCC and he's ran around the Humvee. And our Humvee is on fire and we have grenades. My M4, my, my weapon was melted to my seat like where the seatbelt was, because that's where I kept my weapon. So I could just hop out of the truck and grab my weapon, but it was melted to the seat. He runs around the Humvee and he says, yeah, and I'm not going to repeat the words, but he says some very, th these words signified, okay, Frank, you're in trouble because he was shocked. And this is a guy that had been to war a few times, you know, a high ranking guy, and I'm not saying he was shocked in the way that he didn't handle business the way he should have. I mean, I think because he saw like a guy that was like his son laying on the ground looking like this and he just yelled, the, well, the first word was, was holy and the other two words were pretty extreme. And that's when I knew. And he came over right away and he sat me like on my butt. We have handles on our vests. And he, he grabbed it and he starts dragging me away from the Humvee because the hum, Humvee is going off. It's already melted. It's exploding. And I, 
Uh, I have put pictures of it on my Facebook. Oh, I'll have um, to check that out. Yeah, so it's it's like I still go back and look at it, and it's like I can't believe I crawled out of this stuff. It doesn't look like a truck. Uh, people see it, and and I've had time to decompress, and it doesn't shock me anymore. But I understand when people see it why it it just it, it some people cry because it's so it, it's so it's just one of the like like uh, not to compare it, but you you ever watch one of those hoarder shows when when the family member first finds out that their family member's a hoarder and they're just like, they're, they can't, you know, they can't. I love that comparison. <laughs> right, because that's the only thing, that, <laughs> that's the only thing I could, I could say. Just that initial. Do you see the Humvee as you're being dragged away or are you in the opposite direction? Honestly. Or do you um, not even remember? I don't remember it at this point. I do remember kind of laying on the ground at this point. One of my guys is trying to put an IV in my arm, get me some fluids. And because uh, Skills has to run all the way from the back of the formation to up to where we are, you know, while all this is going on. And uh, we have what's uh, called a QRF unit. And so they pulled up on scene right away. Uh, they were there in seconds. And this amazing guy by the name of Sergeant Kwashi, he gets out. And he's just this iconic tall guy. And he, he was, he's just epic. And I just remember laying there. It was like I'm watching a movie because he's just giving orders, you know, to his guys. And, and they, you know, they went right after that guy because that guy that blew us up was 100 meters away from us, maybe. He controlled, detonated that advice. He, he, he waited for us to drive and then he did it. It's not something you can see. They don't put it in the middle of the street. And so... I just remember that. And then at this time, I'm really feeling woozy, right? I'm losing a lot of blood. And I'm feeling sleepy as I'll get out. People say, what's it like to feel like to die? And I say, well, you just feel really tired. Uh, and I said, one day when in a perfect world, if you were ready to die, it would be the best sleep you'd get, you know, but kind of weird way of looking at those things. Uh, this is not for dramatic effect because I really wanted to give up like everything kind of flashed in my brain and it was like i'm done already before this i had already said if this happens you know most people we if we talk about this if this happens how can i live and so like i'm starting to fade and i'm starting to like pass out like lose consciousness and it's like i don't know what it was but I remember just looking, I said, well, one last time, I'm going to look at the sky. Because as crazy as it sounds, the sky looked beautiful. Like the stars were in the sky. It was clear. You could see the moon. They don't deserve it. But <laughs> I really wanted to see it one last time and, have, and say, okay, this is how I'm going to go out on my own, own deal. At this time, I just feel skilled. I can hear him. And he comes running up. You can tell he's emotional, but I mean, this is a man who has done this many times over in the in the combat zone, and he's a hardened veteran. And he, you could tell that, that now it's his best friend here. And that at that moment when he touched me, that's why I always call him my angel, and that's why I got his name tattooed on my arm around a crucifix because. 
when he touched me, it was like just that little bit of energy where I just was like, no, I'm going to fight. I can't give up. I was ready to go out with the looking at the sky. I just said to myself, okay, fight. Whatever, whatever that means, fight. Like, stay awake, stay calm, keep breathing. Skills is talking to you. He's like, we're going to be all right, buddy. This and that, we're going to be in Germany having a beer in no time. Don't worry. He's putting tourniquets on me. And they're plastic tourniquets. And they snap. And they don't, they don't call them skills for no reason. He, he's got the old metal tourniquets. And he, he whips them out like a cop does his handcuffs, you know, out the back. And he's like, I can't see. I just, I just feel the, the tightening, you know, and he stops the bleeding. I'm now at this point, like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm so motivated to live. I'm like, I got to live. I got to live. It's weird like that. It's like, I went from totally giving up to... I don't know. I just, I got to live. I can't, I can't die. This can't be the end. They load me up and uh, uh, one of our uh, Humvees pulls up. There's other two guys from another company and they put a, the board that you lay on the, uh, right. The gurney type board. It's not a gurney, but it's. Yeah. And so they put it across their laps and then they put me on top of it. And I actually, at this point, the thing gets stuck, caught on the Humvee seat. And I actually reached up on the doorway of the Humvee, and it was like a team thing in this moment. And as I pulled up to get into the Humvee, they pushed, and it, and we got on, and everybody's uh, keeping the morale up. They're talking, you know, like I said, they're talking about how many beers we're going to have, all this good stuff. At the end of the of it, we get to like a safe zone, which is just a tent. And it's got like a colonel in it. And all he does is operate on soldiers all day, him and his people. And this is what they do. They're like having a, oh man, I'm, I'm so thankful for, for people like that, that take those jobs because I only had to go through it once, but they have to see it all the time. And they do it with uh, grace and they respect people so much. So I get in the tent. And by this time, I, you know, I had, I failed to mention, I've already, I've ranked up quickly because I've been at war. So I'm a corporal at this point already. I'm almost about to be a sergeant. I was just waiting to go back so I could re-up my contract after the war. And I was going to do five more years and get my E5. And then I was going to be a leader in the army. But I'm getting to this tent and I remember they're carrying me. And, all, you know, obviously all I can do is look up it. And there's these lights. Uh, above every so many inches and it's just and it's just slowing down a little more and my adrenaline's wearing off and the pain's hurting a little more now and they put me on the operating table and I see the colonel there and he's he's prepping there and he's doing all his things and and this guy has nerves of steel I mean I want to get to this level one day mentally uh, because even as a corporal I would never dream of grabbing an officer by his uniform or, you know, demanding anything. And most people would say, well, you know, you're not at fault there. And, and I wasn't, you know, but in my soldier life before that, well, you would never dream of doing that is the point. And so I'm like starting to pull on his uniform. 
Because I'm like, Doc, it's really starting to hurt. You know what? Just stay positive. Hold on. I'm like, Doc, you got to put me out. And he's like, just a few more seconds. We got to do this, 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 and this. And before I knew it, I was out. November 22nd, 2006 was a day that changed Frank's life forever. After his Humvee was blasted by an IED, Frank's legs were horrendously mangled beyond repair. What was a tragedy later became an immense time of potential and growth for Frank. Stay tuned for part two of Frank's episode next Tuesday. Subscribe to the We the People Our American Story podcast. Don't miss one Patriot story. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and most recently on TikTok. See the show notes for account information. Visit the website at www.wethepeopleouramericanstory and sign up for the weekly newsletter. We the People, Our American Story, the podcast for Americans who love America.